Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello listeners and thanks for tuning in to the first episode of Season 3 of Pebble in the Pond podcast. It has been around eight weeks since we last published the last episode of Season 2 and we are itching to get these uh, the new season out to you starting today. Children are one of the most vulnerable groups during and after disastrous events. Clinicians and educators that work with children during or after community trauma events are key to offering support and reducing the chances that children will have ongoing difficulties. However, many are not sure how or what to do or say. Often they too have been personally impacted by the events. One woman committed to supporting these kids is this week's podcast guest, Nicola Palfrey. Nicola is a clinical psychologist and researcher who works clinically with children and families who have experienced significant adversity and trauma. She is director of the Australian Child and Adolescent Trauma, Grief and Loss Network at the ANU, and a project lead for Emerging Minds, the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health, which is an initiative to support workforces, identify, assess and support children under 12 years old who are at risk of experiencing, experiencing mental illness. Before we begin, however, I am also proud to announce that taking the reins for this week's podcast is former Olympian, radio host and her very own association ambassador, Libby Trickett. Tune in as Libby and Nicola discuss how to effectively acknowledge and support children during and after community trauma events, the role of clinicians and educators, as well as the development of the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health Community Trauma Toolkit. Nicola Palfrey, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. 2020 has been a year (laughs) for everybody in so many different ways. It's... um, been so incredibly challenging and you know I'm sure it can be described as traumatic for a lot of people but particularly our young people in our society how how can we talk about this year how how do we describe this year for our youth and adolescents well I think it has been a year and it's a year that has come on the back of other years I suppose is the point so we none of us came into this year with a clean slate Mm. and particularly in Australia and different regions of Australia they've all had their challenges over the last five or ten years and we're thinking about drought Mm. in an ongoing way obviously the terrible bushfires hailstorms floods Mm. um, and then a pandemic on top of that so it really so just a few things just a few (laughs) things just a few things and of course before that just life life Mm. happens and adolescents and young people have challenges interpersonally at home at study and so forth so I think how do we talk to them about it is probably better to think about 
what should we ask them about it and how do we chat to the, with them about this year and what it means and um, how on earth they're travelling. In terms of community trauma, I can't, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, there's been so many things that we've been experiencing, you know, I think so many of us have forgotten on some level the fact that the bushfires were mm. just last year and, and how incredibly traumatic that would have been for not only the communities but specifically the the young children who were going through those experiences. How do we help um, not only the children through that but the people who are supporting them, their families, their parents, caregivers, how do we support everyone going through those traumatic events? Yeah, I think... One of the things it's really important to remember that you have to support the carers that are providing the care to the children and young people and a lot of work that we've done this year has been supporting communities, whether it's school communities or health sectors that are working in bushfire-impacted communities or but just more broadly um, COVID-impacted communities, which is everywhere. And people are exhausted, Mm. absolutely exhausted. And they were exhausted in January. Yeah. A lot of the fire-impacted um, communities, for example, we were working then with educators who hadn't had a summer. Mm. Um, they'd been – so they're coming back into the school year tired and uh, – Already depleted. Already depleted, already impacted personally. And that's one of the really big things with community trauma is a community trauma event we define as anything that kind of ripples or ricochets through a community. Mm. So – it could be a natural disaster. It could be a, a suicide mm. of, of a young person. It could be a pandemic. Yes. And actually the more communities we speak with, m- so many of them, say school communities, are having those, a trifecta yeah. or more events going on because unfortunately after adversity and in ongoing uncertainty, we know that mental health issues get amplified and then what we're seeing in communities is massive spikes in terms of anxiety, um, also self-harm and suicidal ideation. So how do we help them? Um, I think listen, Mm. um, provide support in dosage that people can manage and Mm. that's really important. I think we've had to uh, adapt a lot of our work so we're in another circumstance where you had perhaps one a critical incident, you might go in and deliver some training and support or supervision to to a group, whether it be health workers or, or school setting. We can't do that in the same way because people can't take it on board. Yes, in the, in in they're overloaded. They, they're overloaded and mm. exhausted, and so being mindful about what is useful. Mm. Um, and one of the real balances this year has been following the lead of the people to give them what they want yes. in terms of support, but sometimes. That's just another thing. If we're asking, how can we help? What can we provide to you? What is useful? That's just another thing. It's decision fatigue. Exaction. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Decision fatigue. So being thoughtful about maybe offering limited choice. Would this be helpful or would that be helpful? In the way you do with a kid, yes. right? <laughs> with a child. <laughs> Give um, directed um, choice but limited choice. And so thinking about that, I think, and, and being willing to be flexible. Do you find there's much of a difference between something – that might be a bit more tangible, like a bushfire or a, or a suicide in a commu- community and the global pandemic, because, you know, obviously it feels almost more f- visceral and physical, the experiences of a community mm. with something traumatic like a, a bushfire, but the global pandemic feels more isolating. Yeah, it's a really interesting point because I've heard both sides, actually, yeah. that people feel, yeah, that, that this is, 
the pandemic's an invisible threat in a way, mm. and particularly um, it's so it's universal but so differential in yes. terms of the impact. So talk to anyone who's been in Melbourne yeah. this year and it's just we can't imagine what that's like. For me, I, I live in the ACT, so we had very limited lockdown, sh- limited period of time and then we've had huge freedoms compared to what Melbourne. So our experience of it is different from them. However, in the ACT, there's a lot of children and young people who were really impacted by smoke of course. and hailstorms. So they had this kind of succession of really frightening events and they had a conversation around no one had ever thought about panic due to bushfire smoke. Mm. They thought about bushfires but bushfire smoke and parents trying to manage mask wearing back then because of, of bushfire smoke and um, not being able to play outside and so forth. So I think... The tangibility is very much dependent on your individual experience. So if your grandma is in a nursing home and you're a young person, then that's going to really land very close to you and have an impact that somebody else next door that while you must, might have the same freedoms um, isn't impacted. So I think that's a really important point. We can't assume mm. um, how people are impacted and, and that's tricky because in allocation of resources and funds in the mental health space, for example, we have to triage you yes. know, which communities are most impacted, which schools have had the most impact, and, and yet it is truly individual. And we know that even within families, so siblings maybe uh, experience the same adversity, say a divorce mm. in their life, and one um, child really struggles with that and, and may you know go down a path of at risk of, of poor mental health, of anxiety mm. or... Um, low mood and so forth, and their sibling might not. Yes. And that's temperament, relationships, um, protective factors, Birth all order. of that kind of stuff. <laughs> Absolutely, all of those sorts of things. So it's a challenge in providing support which meets the needs um, of individuals um, within the constraints that we all have. What, what on, re- on the constraints, what sort of challenges do you find that you're facing at this point in delivering um, toolkits and and resources to those communities that need them. So it picks up probably on a couple of points that we've already mentioned. One is information overload and Mm. overwhelm. So we developed the Community Trauma Toolkit resource as part of the National Workforce Centre. It's great. Um, I can say that because I was pulling together a lot of work of other people. It's not not all my work, but um, it's huge. There's Mm. over 200 resources in there and what we learn very quickly is if you just sent the link to people they're like where on earth do I start so yes information yep. overload and trying to get your hand on the right resource at the right time so we, where is a helpful fact sheet for example like today mm. so the managing anniversaries and other triggers that's a helpful resource for today because it's coming into the first anniversary or past the first anniversary for some communities around fires mm. but being able to put your hand on that so that's one is, is how to find the right resource at the at the right time. Um, I think the other issues that we have, as I said, are fatigue Mm. um, and ability to take on more information and ability to keep providing supports. Mm. Um, In community trauma, the adults are impacted as well so that the school counsellors or the psychologists or the GPs are in the community. So they've Mm. been impacted as well, whether it be from a pandemic or a or a disaster, and yet they're trying to provide support to yeah. the children and young people in their community. And the thing that's really compounded recovery from those natural disasters this year is what? how do you promote community recovery? You bring people together. Yes. <laughs> um, you promote connection and uh, opportunities for sharing um, grief and loss, but also moving forward. 
and we haven't been able to do that mm. in, in um, a COVID-19 environment. So a lot of those opportunities particularly, well, for all ages, but particularly young people to come together and try and make sense, meaning-making, you know, is really important after mm. um, community trauma events. And when it's done well, it's fantastic, but when you can't come together, when you can't create those youth-friendly spaces or those opportunities to share or working bees to help rebuild those sorts of things, um, what we're seeing is a bit of a knock-on effect, I think, in terms of the timelines of recovery. Yeah. Um, it's taking longer. <clears throat> it, yeah. It's, it's it's taking longer and it's morphing in different ways. Okay. So, you know, we put the toolkit together based on all the latest research. It's only, you know, a year and a half since we put it out and already those timelines Right. Aren't really accurate because that's so uh, interesting. We didn't count on a pandemic, so you know we were saying you know after four months, from four months onwards is where you start to see some of the mental, ongoing mental health issues okay. emerge, because um, you need to allow time for natural recovery. Mm. Often after community trauma events, there's a a big push that all kids need therapy or all kids are you know have PTSD, and that's not true. Yes. All kids may be impacted, but you would expect that. Like you would expect perhaps if you'd had a really, really frightening experience to have some trouble getting to sleep mm. or some aggression in toileting behaviours or some behavioural um, outbursts, for example. But we need to allow time for natural recovery before we jump in with a, a diagnosis, for example. So we had a timeline based on the evidence which was, you know, from four months plus, often a year plus is where some of those more ongoing issues would start to emerge. And But as I said, that timeline has been impacted by... Somebody, a lot of people are kind of cascading of course. disasters or adversities and um, I think... Just a pile-on effect. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, you know, certain communities must feel like those dolls, they just, every time they knock down, it just keeps bouncing back up and getting knocked yeah. down again with one thing after another. Well, with how difficult <laughs> this year has been in so many ways and how do we, and, you know, obviously ensuring that we're supporting the children, but... To support the children, we as the the caregivers, the adults, the parents, the teachers, the psychologists and counsellors within communities, how do we make sure that we're getting the right support that we need to be able to give that support to the children? It's a really good point, and it's it's really difficult. Um, we've done a lot of uh, work this year with um, caregivers and support workers, whether they be mental health professionals or other health professionals, for example, who were frontline workers really mm. this year and educators, uh, absolutely. Uh, and we have to say that dreaded word, self-care. <laughs> no, term. It's so true. I know. And, and people um, respond differently to that. But uh, one of my colleagues, when we were running a training, talked about it, which is um, we need to be able to have a conversation about self-care that doesn't turn into self-flagellation, yes. which is, yep. you know... Um, another way in which I'm failing. Mm. Um, I'm not doing that. I'm not taking care of myself. I'm not meditating or I'm not, you know, this kind of quite limited um, notion of self-care that actually makes us feel worse about ourselves because yeah. we're not... Well, sometimes we can't now, you know, people have lost jobs. They can't afford to go and get exactly. a massage or That's a facial. Ex or exactly. And I think so opening up that conversation around to broaden out what that actually means, taking care of yourself and... All the stuff we say as professionals to parents and others all the time. You can't, you know, fill it somebody else's cup if your cup is empty and yes. put the mask on first. Yeah, all of those analogies. Mask. Yep. <laughs> but I think opening up the conversation around what actually nourishes you, what actually sustains you in mm. a way, and it's really important. So we have to take it away from an eye roll. Oh, okay, here they're going to say this, you know. Self-care. Do something nice for yourself. 
and and how do we actually do it because it's really important and we can't help we we get jaded we get um rigid when we're burnt out and you're seeing that in communities you're seeing it in um educators themselves reporting those sorts of things you know their their flexibility of thinking is Mm. going and they're because they're tired and they're impatient yes and so and we know what happens you know in families in in friendships in, in any relationship so whether it is you know the drive home that takes a bit longer but it gives you a like this sounds silly, but this is my one, a view of my favourite trees. Yeah. <laughs> um, so to kind of have a little moment of pleasure or kind of, you know, listening to a trashy podcast where you walk your dog. It's yeah. what can you do that's <sighs> just mm. a little bit, you know, um, at, at a time. So I think that's really important. I know when I was experiencing postnatal depression after the birth of my first daughter, I you get to this point where you're just so tired Mm. and you're just so exhausted and, as we've mentioned, so depleted and just making any decision is difficult. So it feels almost impossible to try and work out ways to nourish ourselves. And so I think we do fall back into those ideas that it has to be going to do yoga Mm. or, you know, has to be something that's an hour of your day. Yes. when it can be simple things like you mentioned, like yeah. going for a slightly longer drive mm. and seeing trees that, you know, give you life yes, <laughs> and, exactly. and allow you to breathe. Yeah. Um, do you point to people, you know, to do some of those sort of mindfulness techniques as a as a first place to start, as a cheap and sort of free place to start? Yeah, you have to be careful around language because mindfulness turns a lot of people No, no, totally. Exactly. Uh, yes. Um, like some people love it but I remember um, this silly little anecdote but a young person I was working with and it was the first session, you have seen a therapist before, you know, anything you loved, anything you hated um, so I don't make the same mistakes and she said, if you tell me to do mindfulness, I'm going <laughs> to punch you in the face. <laughs> I was like, okay, I won't do that then. No problem. So we're going to, yeah, we're going to talk about other ways to to regulate yourself. But Mm. I think um, it was something that I used to do a lot with young people, um, particularly who maybe struggled with self harm or other Mm. other kind of emotional distress. Was you you kind of create a list, whatever that looks like. It can be really fancy. It could be really simple of things that help. Yes. Yeah, and they can't cost anything, and they can't rely on other people to be available because you need to be able to execute them yourselves. Yes. You know? um, but because you can't think of those things when you're distressed. No. You can't be creative. You can't come up with ideas. And when you're overwhelmed and tired or depressed, same thing. So if you have a list, you know, I've got a list and it's simple things. It might be, you know, run a bath or it might be make an online photo album or it mm. might be play the music that just you like or read a chapter of a book, whatever. But I think trying to have things on hand that um, you can go to so you can kind of drag yourself psychologically or literally yeah. there to say, okay, I can tolerate doing doing that bit. Or um, I've actually read an, something in some content form in the last little while which the headline was um, Run the Dishwasher Twice and it was a woman speaking about um, she was suffering badly from depression and mm. she couldn't, couldn't get stuff done, one of which was a dishwasher. Dishing, dishwashing, which was piling up and piling up and piling up. But it was just beyond her at that stage to rinse and put in the dishwasher. Mm. And her therapist just said, run the dishwasher twice. Run it three times. Forget about the rules. There's no rules. Yeah. Like just get where you need to get to. And it was just a beautiful analogy I thought about. Just I read do that what too. you can. It's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. And, and 
But we need permission sometimes from other people to go, it's okay, you don't yeah. have to. You can think about something differently. You don't exactly. have to abide by society's yeah. rules. That's of right. Sit down in the shower. It's yes. good. It's yes. nice. <laughs> it's one of my ones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mine too. It's harder to get up these days. Yeah. <laughs> I want to get a stool in there. That would be great. Um, but I think that's so true because I have a mental health checklist and so much of it is around sleep for me with three small children. But I think if we can have those little things that indicate, you know, when we are feeling stressed or overwhelmed that we can go back to and go, oh, that's right, I haven't had a good night's sleep in a while. Yeah. You know, can I go for a walk and get some fresh air? Yeah. And really also I think things. one of the not good ones that I learned, um, was taught, was uh, give somebody permission to let mm. you know, someone brave enough <laughs> to let you know, particularly in uh, my line of work, it was around probably around burnout or vicarious mm. traumatisation. Um, they know the signs. Look, work out what the signs are for yourself. Things for me were like when you think it's a splitting, agency splitting, like no one else cares. Mm. You know, the, the, this this service don't care or these people don't care, only us care about these young people. Um, but giving somebody else permission, whether it be your best buddy, your partner, your, your mother to say, yeah, you know. How are you, you okay? travelling? Yeah. Yep. My husband would say, so uh, my, let's say my supervisor's name was Pete. Um, yeah, Cameron would say, do you think you need to book in to see Pete? <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be like, no, why? <laughs> oh, you just always seem to enjoy it when you talk to Pete. And that was enough for me. In the moment, I'd be like, I am How fine. dare you? <laughs> How dare you? Exactly. <laughs> but then, yeah, actually, heaven. Yeah, right. <laughs> he got me. But it's helpful. Help yeah. someone to kind of kindly and gently point us in the direction of you know maybe you need a bit of a a bit of a top up from somebody else. Do you feel like in our society, you know, we we are talking so much about mental health these days? Do you still feel like we have a ways to go in how we discuss it? You know, not just in general population, but certainly with our young people. I do. I think it's come. A really long way. I was actually having a conversation yesterday with somebody about, you know, when I was in high school in the the eighties. I remember we knew one. There was one young person. It was clear to us that had anorexia, mm. and that was it. We didn't really have any other language or understanding of. I mean, of course, the issues were there. We yeah. just didn't know what they were. Um, and then the pendulum can swing, and I think the. There's a balance between – so I think it's great that there's mental health literacy around children and young people. Um, I think the balance around when to seek help, how to seek help is still where we have um, a lot of work to do and I think there's a lot of uh, stigma still around mm. um, seeking help. I actually had a conversation with some young people around this and, and what could we do to make it better for young people and it sounds so simple. When they say it, they're like – from preschool, you should just be taught about mental health. It should be part of um, what we learn. And also going to the school counsellor should be just normal, like going to the canteen. Yep. And we should be told as kids that everybody goes there sometime because everybody gets sad sometimes or worried. And when you hear that out of the mouths of babes, yeah. it's like, that's Very so simple. Yeah. yeah. Don't give me a pink slip. Don't call me out. Don't, you know, we, we're not there yet where kids feel it's okay to, mm. to do that. But starting early intervention by actually normalising that, of course, we're all humans in families and everyone has rough times sometimes mm. and it's normal to seek support. So, yeah, I think there's um, 
We should probably listen to them a bit more. Yeah, that sounds really powerful. <laughs> yeah. You know, we had uh, those uh, healthy living vans or healthy Harold who used to come and teach us about food and, you know. That's exactly what they said. That's the example they gave. Yeah. They talked about, you know, people come in and talk to us about other things. Um, why don't they do it around mental health and well-being? Mm. Especially um, when it impacts every facet of your exactly. life and your being and, yeah. and families and relationships yeah. and, you know, work and career. It's, I think it's uh, incredible, incredibly powerful. Yeah, and the other thing they said, which I've heard a lot over the last couple of days at the, the CAM conference as well, is, again, straightforward, but just got to ask kids what, what's going on and actually listen to their answer. And that mm. was another thing those young people spoke a lot about a number of whom who had really um, a lot of responsibility at a young age as young mm. carers, either with parents with mental health issues or caring for younger siblings or living with different challenging situations. And they talked about that they would just get in trouble. Mm. They'd be late to school and no one would question why. The fact that they were actually getting their three younger siblings off to school mm. or that they hadn't slept because they were really worried about mum or whatever it may be. Mm. There wasn't a curiosity about what might be going on. Understanding. you. Um, and so then they just felt more isolated than they yeah. were the bad kid, than they were labelled and, you know, so there's some simple steps we can do up front which can completely change tra- trajectory. What do you feel are the solutions in terms of that, you know, in terms of I- engaging with people in the community to sort of break down those still persistent stigmas mm. that we have um, in our communities? I think mental health literacy is really important and, and, and when we actually think about what that means mm. is people are scared to mm. ask. Um, I work a lot obviously around trauma and adversity and people are really scared. They t- Why are we scared? Oh, they talk about this can of worms. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, and it's like uh, any difficult topic, right? People from good intentions don't want to do harm mm. and when we were developing the Community Trauma Toolkit, that was really obvious actually we – for the we were developing resources for an audience we hadn't worked a lot with before which were first responders like yeah. fireys and ambos and and those sorts of groups of people and they talked a lot about I'm not sure what I can say I'm not sure what I should say to a young person or a kid um, say in the field and they're dealing with them all the time in really traumatic circumstances mm. um, and I think that's very, very common so whether or not it's clinicians in mental health services or um, nurses in the ED or fireys in the field um, and educators in the classroom, sometimes they pull back because they're scared. Mm. Yeah, they, they're not bad people. They're not not interested in kids. They're just, what if I make it worse? Mm. What if they say something and I don't know what to say back? One of the, th- the big lessons I think um, been working a lot with schools was we'd kind of always assumed and talked a lot about how to open up conversation, how to mm. check in with kids and so forth. But equally important was how you safely shut down conversations. Right. And what I mean by that is if I check in with you and say you're in my home class and, you know, I've been noticing you're not doing that good, you know, you're not yourself, how are you travelling? And then you start to tell me Mm. um, and you have another class, you have 24 other students in the classroom. So how do you safely and respectfully say to the young person, I'm really glad you trusted me with that information. It's a bigger conversation than we we can have now. Can can I check in with you after class or can I connect you in with somebody Mm. else to have a further conversation? And those, so we, I think we have to do the top and tail for people to feel But that's safe. so simple as well. Exactly. It's just respectful human yeah. connection. But pe- it's overwhelming. Like the first time people, if 
there's a lot of, you know, talk about uh, suicide risk assessment. You know, I can remember the first time you do it and you're just thinking, please say no, please say no. You know, have you mm. thoughts of hurting yourself? Please say no, please say yeah. no, please say no. Yeah. But when they say yes, we know what to say because you've, you've got the script in front of you or you, you, you're trained to do it in the same for any difficult conversations. But we need to recognise that people need support to do that. and, and Do we need to teach people how yes. to do that from like... <laughs> Primary school? Well, I think we need to teach people how to do it in all the... Yeah, from primary school, I think we need to... In the workplace? You don't (laughs) learn it, you know, in your training. Mm. There's not basic mental health literacy in a lot of of training for people who work in the public. Mm. Um, And so it relies on often extracurricular training, whether it be mental health first aid or other, you know, great programs which are designed to help people, accidental counsellor, all of those sorts of things Mm. are around this, aren't they? They're like how to have a structured conversation in a safe way. Um, But that relies on organisations and individuals to do it Mm. um, off their own bat and out of their own pocket often. Um, So, yeah, I'd like to see it a bit more mainstreamed, I suppose. So you're starting a new role with with Headspace uh, as a national uh, clinical manager of the Headspace schools. Yes. Um, where do you want to see mental health move in the next sort of five to ten years? Uh, you know, is it mostly around that mental health literacy, um, giving people tools and information? Yeah, I think it's it's moving the conversation on from an awareness perhaps of mental health issues and prevalence and statistics and so forth to um, service delivery is a massive one and, the, and there is a huge amount of work going on around service um, mapping and gaps and I'm hopeful that a lot of the inquiries and commissions, they've identified that, so the lack of services um, and the lack of workforce for, for children and young people in particular. Um, there's, there's great services out there but they're stretched um, mm. and particularly for under 12s. Um, if you're a young person under 12 and you're struggling with your mental health and well-being, it is incredibly difficult mm. to get the support you need. Um, Why at, is that? Uh, the services don't exist and right. the workforce doesn't exist. Um, their services have been understaffed and overwhelmed for a long time, as we know, um, and the resources get pulled into acuity, which is understandable. So if you have suicidal 14-year-old in a CAMS or a KIM service, and they have a lot of them, mm. um, then your capacity to see in an early intervention or prevention sense, a, you know, an 8-year-old or a 10-year-old that may be heading down that path is, is really limited. Mm. So I'd like to see continued investment in training of the, and supporting of the workforce to deliver services early. Mm. Um, and I think a continuation of the work that's begun, but again, a long way to go, I think, in terms of real co-design and collaboration with young people about how to do services better Mm. Um, because when we do that it works really well but Mm. also again the example I gave before if you actually ask young people about what works for them and what doesn't work for them it's about relationships Mm. so that's all they ever come back to, you know, I was at this school and I didn't feel like I belonged or whatever. I, you know, I felt like I was labelled as this. And then I moved to another school and the teachers in the playground talk to me and the principal knows my name and they, you know, so it's not... Human oh, connection. Yeah, it's not, oh, I found CBT mm. really helpful, you know, yeah. whilst those strategies are, are really good. It's the relational stuff that, mm. that makes a difference. So I think... Um, Moving that, and if I was in charge of everything, yeah, if you were in charge of the world, <laughs> what would you do? Um, I would make social emotional well being core curriculum, yes, yeah, 
yeah, I wholeheartedly <laughs> agree. That's amazing. <laughs> so if you or someone you know, you know, perhaps you are a parent or caregiver or teacher, um, a person who works in, in mental health, if you know somebody or a child is, is particularly struggling, what would you recommend them seek out online? What sort of resources? Yeah, so I think that there's a lot of really good resources out there and depending on the age of, of the child, um, there is information available on places like Headspace, mm. um, but also the Emerging Minds National Workforce Centre's got resources for families, the Raising Children's Network. Um, there's a whole lot of, of good resources out there. Mm. Um, talk to your, your young person. Um, say that you've noticed. That's another thing that we've heard a lot this week in the conference is the power of somebody noticing. And you mm. don't have to have all the solutions, but I've noticed that you're not yourself at the moment and I'm, I'm a bit worried about you and I'm here if you want to have a chat and don't be turned off if they don't take it up straight away mm. um make the offer got to I think the notion of walking with someone through it's like we find out a bit more about it like let's see if we can get some information what do you think's going on mm. so I think an approach of openness and we can all relate to that when we've all struggled yes. we've all had difficult times and we it really resonates with us when people get it right and we don't we're not cranky with them if they fumble it or if they feel awkward mm. um but it really hurts if people don't seem to notice or care yeah so they just ignore it ignore it or dismiss it yeah don't be silly if ever you hear those words coming out of your mouth suck them back in again we've all mm. said it we've said it to our kids yep. it's not that bad don't be silly get over it if you hear those things you should probably retract mm. apologize and say that actually made me what it Notice what it does to you. So when we say those things, it's usually it makes me – you're making me scared. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got teenage kids at home and I can feel myself sometimes wanting to say, no, 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 it's just year seven girls. It's not that bad. Don't be silly. You know, just stay away from them. And I, in, in my brain I'm thinking, when in earth did that ever, ever work help. for every <laughs> young girl ever? Yep. It does matter. It is the centre of her universe and if she feels snubbed – it's horrible. Yeah. And if I tell her it's not a big deal and just to get over it, she's not going to keep coming to me mm. because why would she? Yeah. And that's all I want. I want them to keep, you know, I want them connected. I want them to come and tell me how silly it was and how horrible it was or how not silly it was, how um, upsetting it was mm. and how hurt she felt and help her put words to those feelings because otherwise she'll go and get advice from somewhere else and comfort and reassurance from somewhere else and... I'd rather it come from me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> As her mum, I'm like, I need the, I, I want that connection so I can kind of, yeah, keep an eye. Yeah. It's incredibly powerful stuff. And I think it's so important to educate us not only on how to support the children, but really supporting ourselves yeah. to understand what they need, mm. but how we can do that yeah. for them as well. Yeah. And I think that, um, Noticing in yourself what triggers you, if mm. you like that language or don't like that language, but what arcs you up, mm. you know, what makes you feel whatever you feel panicky. Like mm. I, I know I can feel panicky inside and that's scared for them. Mm. You know, it's like, oh, I don't want you to have to go through that. I don't want you to be exposed to that, whatever that is, is. but they're going to have to be. So we either help equip them with it. and Preparing see they, them, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's and I think it's important to be honest that it's really 
hard. Yes. <laughs> Parenting's really hard. And uh, we all feel woefully ill-equipped at times. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the time. Yeah, that's right. And that's a, that's a good conversation to have. And that's why you ask advice or you chat to people. Or you, and if we're honest, then we'll get somewhere. If we're all pretending that, you know, just after having a birth, we all feel fabulous and mm. on top of the world... It makes us feel even worse when we don't because most people don't. Mm. Yeah. I, I find that very uh, an interesting topic, uh, you know, just to deviate for a moment, mm. but I, I find that a really interesting topic because I do feel like there is a sense among a lot of people and whether that's contributed to by social media and this idea that we have these perfect lives mm. and it's the reality that we don't yes. and then that, you know, transmits down to children who, you know, are having very difficult circumstances yes. that they're living amongst but then they can't talk about it mm. because even though some of their peers might be having similar experiences, yep. they don't know that. They no. just see the veneer. I th- and I think there's the two sides to it, which is the, absolutely that, that, that. I mean, as adults who social media has come into our life, you know, we can joke and say it's fake book. We know mm. that you don't, you know, you post a picture up of the when everybody's looking nice, but the, you know, the, Two minutes before you were screaming at everyone, can I just have one nice photo of my family? One nice photo. (laughs) So they have that pressure where they're not necessarily aware um, or it's hard for them to hold in their head that not everybody else is is having such a a lovely time. Um, But from the other side, they're also uh, trying to work out where they fit. Mm. And and it's important, right? Like they want to fit in their circles just like we did now Mm. for us it might be the pine trees at the end of the oval or you know Mm. this spot uh, down at the beach it wasn't in the online world but you've got to tap into what it felt like Mm. how important it was to belong and to feel like um yeah you were part of something um and the other side of it i suppose is that notion of when people around them are behaving in a certain way and i think kids we do a better job of this now but I think we can do an even better job is from a really young age kids can understand distress Mm. and that behaviour is a a communication of that and so you can talk to kinder kids and they do the bubbles education around autism and so forth and so they will come out to you and they'll say oh oh Johnny's um you know he's screaming at the moment because and he's got his hand over his ears because there's too much noise and he's upset Mm. Because they've been given the information. Yes. You know, and so we underestimate them a whole lot, right? And then, so then we can set that up and remind them that if this child is behaving this way later in life, we don't know. They might be having actually quite a lot going on because usually if people are just being indiscriminately nasty to somebody else, something's going on for them. Most people aren't just jerks. (laughs) No, that's right. And, and, And it still hurt your feelings. Yes, exactly. But kind of walking that the two sides of it with them is, um, yeah, it helps us kind of move through it, I think. Mm. Such a wonderful conversation and, I, you know, I could probably talk to you for hours <laughs> about mental health and, you know, our children and, and working through those different things. But if somebody is in a community and they're feeling, you know, it's a community traumatic event, just yep. to come back to the community mm. trauma, um, what, where can they access the community trauma toolkit so the community all of the resources in the community trauma toolkit and the fact that we develop a free and available online because we're lucky enough to be funded by the commonwealth department of health so they can put in their favorite search engine the community trauma toolkit or emerging minds 
www.ecoplanet.com.au and all the resources are there and they are around um, community trauma but also everything else to do with children's um, mental health and wellbeing. So there's loads of resources. Loads. Amazing. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Nicola, for your time this morning. Oh, pleasure. I've loved it. Thanks for having me. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.